Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I'm thrilled to be here again with Dr. Joseph Raphael. Uh, he's, you've actually become, you know, really kind of a friend over these years. We've been chatting about things that interest us for a long time. Let me give you his background and then, uh, you know, we'll jump right into some cool topics today. Uh, he received his BA in philosophy from Princeton, his MD from Drexel. He trained at New York Hospital Cornell University Medical Center and was formerly a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Dartmouth College, uh, actually at the medical school, and he was in practice at Hitchcock Clinic. Uh, he's a member of the Endocrine Society, is board certified in internal medicine, and is a diploma uh, diploma at the American Board of Anti-Aging Medicine. He received his BA in philosophy from Princeton, his MD from Drexel. He trained at the New York Hospital Cornell University Medical Center and was formerly a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Dartmouth Medical School while in practice at Hitchcock Clinic. He's a member of the Endocrine Society. He's board certified in internal medicine and is a diplomat at the American Board of Anti-Aging Medicine. In 1997, he co-founded PhysioAge Medical Group, where he exclusively practiced age man management medicine with a focus on personalized hormone optimization and physiologic age assessment. Uh, we're going to be focusing on that today. Uh, in 2007, he co-founded PhysioAge Systems, and this is a web-based biomarker data collection and reporting system now used by age management practices around the world. In fact, he was just telling me about some cool um, epigenetic testing that will be incorporated into this system that he'll tell us about. Uh, since 2009, he's been involved in clinical telomere biology research, and he's published four studies um, of the effect of oral telomerase activators on normal adult aging. He's lectured nationally and internationally on the clinical application of telomere biology. In 2015, he founded Raphael Medical Group and blogs regularly about telomere biology, hormone optimization, and biomarkers of aging at raphaelmedical.com and physioage.com. You can find him now at raphaelmd on Instagram and stay tuned because he and I will jump in and do a IG live uh, in the near future. Joe, again, welcome back to New Frontiers. Thank you very much, Kara. It's uh, always a pleasure to be talking to you about this really fascinating line of work that we're both in. Right, and it's just evolving so fast. Folks, we're going to link in the show notes to the previous conversations that I've had with Dr. Raphael and any of the content that we've um, dropped onto those show notes, we'll just harvest and bring over to this. So just consider your show notes for this particular podcast to be your go-to for all of the previous com uh, conversations I've had with Joe. and. Two years ago, we actually did, so we talked again about testing and treating telomeres, um, and we, we talked about some of the interesting studies happening in, in recent publications at that time, um, including telomeres and COVID-19. Um, we also talked about the ancient and the new. Is there interaction between cytomegalovirus and SARS-CoV-2 infection? Um, and as we're as, as time goes on, we're learning more and more about these correlations. Um, floodgates of scientific data are uh, providing us significant clues to the underpinnings of this ongoing pandemic. So 
what's new in the scientific world as it, re as it relates to uh, viral interaction, um, immunosenescent changes. Um, and before you go into that and catch us up on current science, just give me a little bit of definition on um, actually talk a little bit about telomeres and, and, and why we're concerned about that relating to COVID-19 and immunosenescent cells and why we're really thinking about those as well. Sure. Um, yeah, that's uh, the, the, the stuff that's coming out now uh, in the literature. Uh, a lot of it is uh, focused on, for obvious reasons, the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, and trying to figure out you know ways to approach it, ways to stratify risk, um, ways to treat people that have gotten uh, infected with SARS CoV two, um, and, and very interestingly, it's turning out that because we knew from the beginning that you know, the major risk factor for getting severe disease and dying is age. Uh, I think 20% uh, of um, the elderly get infected, but that they account for 80% of the deaths. Uh, people have been starting to look at things other than age as a way to, to stratify and then also to think about ways in which you know, the biology behind that might help us treat or prevent um, severe COVID disease. And that all really revolves around the concept of immunosenescence. Um, elderly are getting you know, higher rates of hospitalization and death, <clears throat> excuse me, because uh, they have uh, succumbed to a, at least a degree of immunosenescence. And what is that? Immunosenescence is the process uh, in which your immune system becomes less able to fight off as broad an array of, of uh, antigens, uh, either from tumors or viruses or, or other kinds of pathogens. Um, is, uh, but in addition to that, uh, and not being able to respond to vaccinations as well, um, but in addition to that, this whole concept of inflammaging occurs when your immune system becomes um, uh, immunosenescent. The cells start to produce uh, inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha, IL-6, the, the components that people are becoming more uh, aware of because it's part of the cytokine storm that causes all the damage uh, when one gets infected with severe COVID disease. So uh, looking at an immunosenescent cell, it not only doesn't do its job, which I sort of um, liken to a watchdog trying to keep the, the, the uh, intruders out, um, but an old watchdog not only does, doesn't keep the intruders out, but actually turns around and bites its owner, bites friends, uh, doesn't really know what it's doing. And it's just kind of a, what's the term, a hot mess in some ways um, that uh, of an immune system. And, and, and this, is, this is what happens. Uh, with the immune system. And we really know at this point that it's not so much the virus itself, as, as often is the case with, with viral infections, chronic viral infections particularly, uh, it's the immune system's overreaction to it that causes a lot of the damage. So what causes uh, your immune system to become senescent? Well, there's a couple of mechanisms, but one of the major mechanisms is really through uh, shortening of telomeres. Um, mm -hmm after repeated stimulation of um, in vitro um, uh, T cells, uh, T cells in vitro, it's been shown by Rita Efros at UCLA and others in subsequent studies that after three rounds of strong stimulation, the cells stop dividing, um, their telomeres get really short, the telomerase is no longer expressed, which is the enzyme that makes telomeres longer, and um, they don't express this very important molecule uh, called CD28. Uh, and that helps to mount a brisk response when the T cell links up with the antigen-presenting cell through the 
uh, MHC, you need that CD28 molecule to, to, to mount a really brisk proliferative response to the antigen it's, it's trying to, to knock out. Um, so if this occurs you know, regularly from chronic viral infections, from many other things, um, then your telomeres get short and you have an accumulation of these senescent T cells. Um, that's one way, that's called replicative senescence. There are other ways in which cells can become senescent, uh, meaning that they don't divide, but then also produce this, what, what is called the SASP, senescence-associated secretory phenotype, which is all those uh, inflammatory cytokines I mentioned. Um, if there's DNA damage, sometimes cells will go into that. A recent paper showed that um, a viral infection can cause what's, uh, what's called a, an acute uh, senescence response. Uh, so there's a number of ways, different ways to get there, but the bottom line is you have a, an ineffective cell that also causes damage. Um, telomeres, just to review real quickly, are the capsule on the ends of your chromosomes that are non-coding DNA of the sequence TTA, GGG, that repeats for between eight and 12,000 uh, base pairs or eight to 12 kilobases um, at around age 25 is what, is what, is what you have them. Uh, and then every time the cells divide, you, they get a little bit shorter because the enzyme telomerase, which is supposed, which works to lengthen telomeres, um, is really suppressed after birth for the most part, except with some activity in highly proliferative tissues like uh, the bone marrow and uh, skin cells and gut, uh, white blood cells. But that's not enough, um, and in stem cells, of course, that's not enough uh, expression to slow down, to completely stop that slow attrition of telomere length. So telomeres are known to decline um, about 50 base pairs or 0.05 kilobases per year between ages 20 and 80, so that by the time you get to 80, sort of the average life expectancy, um, your telomeres are, are under five kilobases, sometimes uh, even around, you know, between four and five, and a lot of bad things start to happen at that point. So that's sort of a brief introduction to what immunosenescence is and the relationship of telomeres are to it. Um, and, uh, let me let me just throw let me just throw a couple of thoughts. So basically, the aging journey, like I guess, you, really a normal aging process, and then of course you could have sort of the standard American version of aging, where you're, you know, you're you're turning the volume up on inflammation. So you've got the aging journey, just e increasing vulnerability to getting um, infections, um, chronic infections, or you know something acute like COVID. Um, and so we're, we're putting a lot of attention in looking at, you know, SARS-CoV-2 these days, but it, it's kind of, it's just like a, a, it's a snapshot into aging as well. And I would imagine that if we're, if we're able to improve response to COVID or if we're, if we're able to, you know, just address immunosenescence, we're actually probably slowing down or even reversing biological age, right? It's kind of, it's a, it's it's that related. Well, yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, there actually was a paper published this year showing that uh, immunosenescence actually has effects on um, non-lymphoid tissues such as heart, lung, skin, brain, etc. Um, in a model of of aging, um, if they took mice, uh, Yusufadei. Took mice and deleted a DNA repair um, protein called um, ERCC1, and but did it selectively in hem hematopoietic cells uh, to see whether or not 
senescence of the immune system alone caused problems other than just immunosenescence caused aging of other tissues. Right. And what they found in these mice that they were kind of normal um, up until about uh, age five, at which uh, age five months, at which point they were sort of more resembled two years old uh, mice, which is like an 80 year old mouse. Um, and they, um, they were sort of healthy into young adulthood, basically. But then with the increase in senescent cells uh, that they measured in them, and they had an increase in SAS, that's the cytokine production, that sort of smoldering inflammation um, that, that, we, that is what SASP is, they also had decreased response to um, delayed hypersensitivity testing. Uh, so their immune system was definitely senescent. But they also found that in non-immune cells, there was senescence and damage in liver, spleen, kidney, uh, intervertebral discs, there was less glycos fewer glycosaminoglycans, there was brain degeneration. Um, there are markers for uh, senescence also, the P16 and P21 were increased, increased in S-beta-gal staining, and their lifespan was decreased. Um, and this is really only from a deletion of the ability to uh, repair DNA in, in, this, in, in the cells of the immune system. Um, so it spreads, exactly your point is. Uh, if you start to have immunosenescence, then you're gonna have accelerated senescence of the rest of the body. We know from studies uh, that Judy Campisi did uh, at the Buck Institute that it only takes a, a, you know, one or two or even you know, 3% of cells in a tissue to be senescent to wreak havoc because they sit in, in, in a little niche and then they start to secrete these inflammatory cytokines, which then starts to cause phenotypic changes in the surrounding cells. But that's in the local neighborhood, okay? So, you know, right. as we talk about uh, zip codes, there's good zip codes and bad zip codes in, in neighborhoods, um, but they're kind of a little bit more localized. With the immune system, they have access to every tissue. So yes. a, a bad cell, a senescent cell that's secreting inflammatory cytokines is able to affect multiple tissues, in fact, the whole body. Yes. Uh, and this, this one study and, and, and other studies, um, you know, of different types, I think uh, are, are proof that, rejuvenation of the immune system and likewise, you know, aging of the immune system um, has profound effects on, on the rest of the body. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. That is just very elegantly stated. And, you know, again, folks, we will make sure that we corral together all of the um, papers that uh, Joe's mentioned and we'll put them onto the show notes. So I think what you've said in summary is that the, the immune system is the system. The immune is just the immune system is interwoven with every other organ. It's not a separated entity. And aging, you know, I think Jeff Bland really is linking. Lots of people are linking them, but 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 perhaps Jeff is somebody I've been listening to most re recently. That, you know, if we're if we're going to be addressing aging, we it's we we can't not put most of our attention on the immune system. I want to ask you. Um, to that end, we talked about this last time. So we talked about COVID, and then you know we mentioned the the cytomegalovirus um, paper. These smoldering viral infections that really probably most of us have, you know, chronically, can be a problem. And so I just I just maybe you can talk a little bit about that um, for anybody who hasn't listened didn't listen to our previous uh, conversation, and we'll link to those papers. Yeah. So. Uh... Smoldering viral infections, particularly what we have the most evidence on is the herpes viruses, um, because they are, you know, as the phrase goes, the gift that keeps on giving, and, and that's, uh, you know, being facetious. Um, 
basically they sit latent most of the time in various tissues, depending on which one you're talking about. And they um, require the immune system to work to keep them at bay. And if the immune system has to turn its attention to other stressors or infections, you can have reactivations of uh, any one of the seven herpes viruses. So there has significant showing that those, the more herpes viruses you have, the, the sort of more inflammation you have. Certainly, uh, I think, I don't know if we mentioned last time, uh, there was a paper following people for three years um, and those with cytomegalovirus and then any other three herpes viruses and the more herpes virus you have, the greater your telomere attrition is and, and not, a, not a, a small amount of greater, I mean like 20, 30% more telomere attrition um, with you know, four versus one um, herpes virus. So it, it certainly increases telomere attrition, which is known to be associated with virtually every disease of aging. Um, so that's, that's, that's evidence for the, for the herpes viruses. Um, the, it's, it's associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, people who are CMV positive. So anything that stresses the immune system, increases senescent T cells is going to, is, is definitely going to do that. Uh, there was a paper that came out recently as well, um, looking at, um, you know, the title was sort of, uh, are the healthy vulnerable? I mean, and they started the study before the pandemic, it's by Poloni et, et al at McGill. Um, and they looked at CMV seropositivity in healthy aging adults. And they found that it was associated with uh, immune dysregulation, but also uh, with accelerated epigenetic age. Uh, and, yeah. and you and I have talked about, and you're deeply involved in, in you know, what these epigenetic clocks and, and uh, DNA methylation changes do to the aging and, and various disease processes in ways in which we can affect them. Um, they looked at it uh, in, uh, in a group of 90 uh, uh, adults between 60 and 90, average age 72 years of, of age. And in the CMV negative, there was 4.6 that were in this, what we call immune risk profile, which is um, where the CD4 count divided by the CD8 count or the CD4 to CD8 ratio is less than one. Uh, that's been shown in a series of studies to correlate with 50% increased mortality uh, over just six years. Uh, and those who are not versus those who are not in the uh, uh, in in this what we call immune risk phenotype. So th there was a four four percent in the CMV negative, sixteen percent in the positive. Um, there was fifty five percent were CD CD twenty eight negative, and twenty five percent were CD twenty eight uh, only versus twenty three percent twenty three to twenty five percent in the CMV negatives. So they had definitely a, a senescent, uh, more senescent immune system. But what they found was when they did DNA methylation uh, and used an epigenetic clock that was um, available at the time they were doing the study, um, they had 5.1 years of epigenetic age acceleration versus the CMV negatives. So uh, yeah, having this, these chronic viral infections, particularly CMV, CMV is, yeah. uh, you know, I've said this before and I always wonder whether I should say it again, but, but <laughs> I really think that CMV is a really, really slow HIV. It just requires, and but it's not in the CD4 compartment, it's in the CD8 compartment, but it leads to increase in, um, in immune aging, uh, right. inflammation, and, uh, and there are, you know, just hundreds of studies showing these associations uh, from, from various different organ systems and various dis different diseases. Um, so, you know, I think that 
they've worked really hard and found a vaccination for SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, I hope that they really turn their, their attention on finding one for CMV because it is so, so, so damaging really uh, over time. Uh, you know, interestingly, there's, they're also finding reports in the literature now, uh, I'm finding reports in the literature where patients that have uh, severe COVID disease are ending up getting opportunistic infections when they're CMV positive. Um, CMV positive, uh, like uh, CMV you know, proctitis, CMV uh, pneumonitis, uh, other things, because it's reactivating and you know it's it's uh, it's it's this this really really bad virus that causes these uh, these infections when you don't have a uh, a fully competent immune system. That's that's so interesting. Um, so these smoldering viruses are pro aging and they can wreak havoc if the system is vulnerable from another illness such as um, SARS CoV two or just you know the aging journey itself. That's a pretty strong statement about correlating it with HIV. Well, the, it, it, you know, it begs the question, it, since so many of our patients have, you know, one of the, one of the herpes viruses hanging around that may come and go. I mean, what are some of your go-to interventions for dealing with this? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, um, you know, unfortunately there is not a good antiviral that's not a little, you know, that's, that's the ones we currently have are a little bit toxic, nephrotoxic and liver toxic. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you use them when someone's, you know, going to succumb to the disease as we did when we were treating, like I did when I was treating AIDS patients during the AIDS epidemic in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but, but uh, you know, those, you won't, we wouldn't give that to a healthy, a relatively healthy person to try to keep CMV at bay. So we don't have a direct CMV one. Um, if somebody has uh, chronic recurrent, um, you know, either HSV2, I'm sorry, HHV2, uh, genital herpes. Um, I, I sometimes put patients on chronic uh, Valtrex treatment to, to keep it at bay, particularly if they have very high titers of uh, CMV uh, because the thinking behind it is, and again, this has not been backed by a study, but the thinking behind it for me is that um, if you can, if you can keep the attention on CMV and, and not have it diverted, if they're going to have an outbreak of, of HSV one or, or, you know, general herpes, then perhaps you can decrease the amount of damage that CMV can do. Um, and then at the same time, they have decreased recurrence of, of the uh, herpes, um, symptoms, either, you know, labial or genital. There's also some really interesting data, uh, that has come out, uh, on, the role of uh, herpes uh, HHV1 and Alzheimer's disease and, and as a, as a risk right. factor for increased risk of Alzheimer's and studies showing that people who were either on prophylaxis or were chronic, recurrently treated with uh, antiviral, antiviral such as um, uh, acyclovir or valgancyclovir, um, valacyclovir um, have reduced incidences of, uh, of Alzheimer's. Interesting. Uh, which you know makes sense again through the sort of senescence pathway. Uh, it's not the neurons that are becoming senescent because they don't you know divide. To, um, they're post mitotic, but the supporting cells, the the glia, the microglia, are are the ones that get senescent and then turn nasty with uh, not doing their job, uh, not energetically supporting them, and also secreting inflammatory cytokines that cause uh, damage to the neurons. So. Um, uh, yeah. So what do I, what do I, that's my justification for that. Uh, I think it's you know, relatively low toxicity. Um, 
and um, I'm following Titus. I haven't seen a strong signal yet as, as to whether or not um, I get a decrease in the CMV IgG. As I mentioned to you, CMV IgG titers are the way you diagnose somebody with CMV, but also higher titers are associated with more mortality and morbidity. And presumably if you can bring those down, you've done the patient uh, some good. Do you see them? Do you see them shift with the diet and lifestyle? You know, I, I, I don't have, uh, we're still collecting data. You have to get a pretty large data set on that uh, to make that assessment yet. Uh, so I can't say that I've seen that. I mean, most of my patients come in doing pretty well from that standpoint, and we, we certainly make adjustments uh, as needed in them. Um, but I haven't looked at it that systematically. I, I know you do a lot more of that than, than I do, and I've got to work on my, uh, my uh, database to add more collection of, of things like, you know, what's your calorie intake, et cetera, and what's your, um, you know, phytonutrient intake, but that, I don't have that ability just yet. Well, it'll be pretty cool when you, when you can kind of data crunch the, the massive amount of information you guys are building into your system. It'll be really exciting. Um, so let's see, there was a, there was a study published just recently, uh, virus-induced senescence is a driver and therapeutic target in COVID-19. This was a Lee at all, um, you know, just kind of underscoring everything you've said. Anything you want to add? Any comments on this study? You know, I, I mean, I think it's really, again, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, I think it, it shows that it is the immune system's response to the virus that causes the problem, you know, when it got in, uh, uh, the virus uh, increased the senescent, uh, uh, senescent associated uh, uh, phenotype, the SASP, um, yeah. you had, uh, you know, increases in, uh, let me just see that paper, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I just, it just came out and I read through it pretty quickly. Um, but when I read through it, basically the concept was that, um, you know, the virus, viruses can cause this. This is what's happening with COVID. Um, and then at the end, they also use rapamycin, interestingly, um, in, in a model to sort of reverse some of those changes. And, and that's a, a whole another area, I think, that's, that's interesting and evolving that yes. I just started getting involved in. I don't know if you've done anything with that in, in your practice. Yep. Um, it's, um, it's, I think, starting to be thought less as a... Um, as an immunosuppressant, which is what it's you know, approved for in, in transplant patients, um, but and more as an immunomodulator through yeah. you know mTOR one, and and um, and and not even really a, a senolytic either. Um, it's more to 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 sort of prevent cells from becoming senescent versus you know remove senescent cells. Right. So um, I just think that that paper was sort of more evidence that viruses. Uh, I gave a talk. Um, last year early this year you know how this stuff all runs together <laughs> especially in the pandemic time yeah. is time has definitely changed um you know where i was talking about uh covid and 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 immunosenescence and i really think that this is going to be the decade of the virome uh versus the decade of the uh the microbiome yes. i mean there's still so much more to learn about the microbiome obviously but i think the the, the virome has gotten a little bit of uh short shrift uh, up until recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that is, again, a silver lining of this pandemic, you know, if there, you know, if you, if you say there is one, uh, where because attention has been turned towards 
you know, viral mechanisms for inducing senescence, uh, for um, causing disease and, and things to do about it. Uh, I think that, uh, that that's really gonna be uh, an interesting, um, uh, it'll be interesting to watch the, the story. I, I, as, I, as I mentioned, I hope that we see an increase in, in efforts and there are you know, still very strong efforts toward finding a, a vaccination for CMV, but, but having a, um, uh, a, a really good vaccination, the one that works for, for CMV could be really pretty amazing. Right, right. Um, I agree with you actually. And maybe as we move towards this RNA technology and see that it you know, appears to be rather extraordinary, you know, you know, where else can we apply that? Um, I know some of my colleagues will disagree on that, but <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> yes. yeah. I've had I'm, more than a few colleagues on Instagram get, you know, a lot of backlash when yeah. they say that, but that's, um, that's a whole nother discussion. I agree with you. And I, and being an ND, I'm thinking about, you know, diet and lifestyle and botanical and, you know, all of the the other interventions, the foundational pieces that need to be in place for somebody to, you know, age gracefully, um, and just putting more attention towards what we do for viruses. I I, I agree that the microbiome, the bacteria, um, have have gotten a lot of attention, and and turning over to look at at viruses is is long overdue. Um, so you published recently, you and a, and a, and a large group of folks um, in a multi-clinic trial uh, with 500 patients, which is impressive, um, using TA65. Um, so this is a telomerase activator that you can actually give us a little background on as well. And we'll again link to it in the show notes. Um, look, it decreases immunosenescent CD8, um, positive CD8 28 negative T cells, and it was published in May in OB, OBM Geriatrics Research. So we'll link to this um, on the show notes and congratulations on your publication and just talk to us about what you guys did and what you found and, and why it's important. Yeah, so the, the impetus for this study um, was a study that I was involved in back in 2007, it just started a cohort of patients in my practice getting TA65, um, as well as a supplement pack and the usual intervention we do for diet and exercise. And after a year of TA65, we found that it um, that they had a uh, decrease in senescent T cells, uh, a slight increase in naive T cells, um, and, um, and a, a decrease in percentage of short telomeres. Um, the critically short telomeres, but you know, it wasn't. Uh, it was a cohort. It wasn't a randomized controlled trial, um, and uh, and you know there was other interventions that were taking place at the same time. So whatever that was published in 2011, I guess. And this this study was started in 2016 um, to try to prove that it was the telomerase activator, uh, which mm -hmm. I'll talk about in just a second, uh, that caused the beneficial effects. In the immune system, uh, there was also beneficial effects in, in bone density, in other markers of um, of metabolic health that was subsequently uh, in a randomized control trial also uh, shown to be uh, uh, from a from from the TA65 uh, in metabolic syndrome. Um, but to really prove out the the, the improvements in uh, a sort of reduction in senescent T cells, this large randomized control trial was undertaken. 
TA65 is a natural molecule um, derived from um, the, uh, uh, the natural me medicine called Astragalus membranaceus. It's been in traditional Chinese medicine for millennia. Um, and the company TA Sciences acquired the rights from it, of it from Geron Corporation, who found it through a natural product screen of over 5,000 different molecules to see which ones would turn on telomerase, uh, hoping to sort of use the telomerase activator to slow down the aging process, sort of the brainchild of Calvin Harley, um, who uh, first came up with the idea that the Hayflick limit might be from telomeres uh, and, um, and, and a major cause uh, of aging. So, um, it is, has been shown uh, to be a telomerase activator in, in the gold standard assay called the TRAP assay. It's a moderate telomerase activator. It's transient, uh, so it turns it on for, uh, it's in the bloodstream for about eight hours. Um, and we have randomized control trial data uh, as well on that lengthening telomeres um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a trial done in Spain. Um, it, uh, it, we don't know the exact mechanism as to how it works, but we think it may de-repress the repressor um, of, uh, of the gene for telomerase for the catalytic component, which is TERT. Um, that's, uh, there's the TERT and then that's the sort of catalytic part that then interacts with the template, the RNA template to make more TTA, GGG and add length to the telomeres. Um, so they recruited, as you mentioned, uh, 900, uh, sorry, 500 subjects, uh, which were followed over nine months between the ages of 45 and 75. Uh, I think the average age was about 57. Um, the previous study, the average age was a little older, 60, 62 to 63, and it was more males, I think 75% males. They corrected that, and this one was 65% women, um, and the age was about the same. Um, and you know, what was really fascinating to me well, let's just talk about the, the trial setup. I mean, it was to see what the effect was on senescent T cells and naive T cells. Um, naive T cells being those that haven't uh, encountered their uh, antigen that they're uniquely designed to recognize their the marker uh, CD95, the lack that, of that on the CD8 cell sort of marks it as a naive T cell. Um, to look at both senescent T cells and naive T cells because we saw signals in the previous study that there was an increase in naive T cells, a decrease in senescent T cells, and really a, a remodeling of the immune system in CMV positive subjects toward a more youthful um, um, sort of profile. Um, they did a dose finding, 100 units, 250 units, 500 units, uh, and also uh, see whether or not there was a, a benefit from splitting the dose up into twice a day. Um, they did baseline studies. And what I found was really fascinating is that two studies of different populations, you know, both in the US, but, um, but you know, separated by whatever, seven years or even longer than that, um, had almost exactly the same amount of senescent T cells in the CMB positive subset. There was um, hmm. 221 uh, you know, per microliter in the, uh, what's called the QPS study. This is the study we're talking about that was just published. Uh -huh. uh, and in the average age of, 57, and in, 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 the, in the other study, which we'll call the patent protocol study, because we used the patent protocol for that, um, there were 272, a little bit more because they're a little bit older. Um, the CD95 negatives were about the same as well. Uh, and then what was also uh, reconfirmed, but has been also shown in other studies uh, published uh, in the literature over the past decade, that the, um, 
um, CMV positive subjects versus the CMV negative subjects had two times the number of senescent cells, uh, or even more than two times, two times the percentage uh, of them. Uh, what was it? Uh, 22 versus 47% um, in CMV yeah. positive, uh, CMV negative versus CMV positive. So if you're CMV positive, you have double the percentage, but actually three to four times the number of, of them. So uh, almost exact replication of the sort of profile of a person who is CMV positive versus CMV negative. And then what we did find, which was very gratifying, uh, was that taking TA65 in any of the doses, actually 100, yeah. 200, 250, um, reduced senescent T cells quite markedly, about 20, yeah. excuse me, 21% in the CMV um, positive subjects and about 13% uh, in the CMV negative subjects. And also, even if you weren't CMV positive, you benefited from it because you had a reduction in the small number of uh, CD28 negative cells you had, but also an increase of the same magnitude in the CD95 um, negative cells. So improvement in both compartments, a decrease in the, in the senescent cells, so about 50 cells, significant, highly significant result. The p-value was less than 0 0.0007. Um, That's awesome. And, uh, and then also what you want to see, which is an increase in the T cells that are naive and can fight off new infections and respond to vaccination. So again, that remodeling right. of right. the immune system towards right. a more youthful profile um, yeah. in, you know, a more, more of an effect than those that needed it, the CMV positive ones, uh, but also an effect in the CMV negative ones. Yeah. And it, it just sort of goes along with the idea that when you have a lot of uh, senescent T cells, you take up what's called immunological space. And when you remove them, there's space for uh, the immune system to uh, produce uh, and have and circulate more uh, naive or, or younger T right. cells that can fight off new infections. So um, it was very, very gratifying to see these two studies done and have virtually the same results. Uh, and it really proves that while the other stuff that was being done was beneficial, uh, probably, you know, in terms of the supplement packs, et cetera. Uh, but the, the main driver was this molecule TA65 uh, that, that caused that. So listen, I just want to say a few things about it. First of all, congratulations. I know a clinical trial, you know, especially one as large as that is, is just a huge undertaking and it's really cool what you found. I, I just want to go back earlier. I was asking you about what kind of intervention you might do, you know, thinking when you likened CMV to HIV, you know, how we think about caring for these patients. And obviously, you know, the answer is right here. <laughs> I mean, obviously, duh. I should have said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, I know. <laughs> All my patients are on TA65, so forgot about that. So you've already thing. got that as a, yeah, that's a foundational piece. Okay. So then those people who might have like, you know, breakthrough or very aggressive. Right. Exactly. You're thinking I mean, about. Okay. So let's just clarify that. And, you know, we know, um, you know, traditionally astragalus is a, an amazing botanical and it has been used as an antiviral and likely it's this particular component, or at least this component is, you know, doing the heavy lifting as, 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 as you guys are, are demonstrating. And I just, I find that very exciting. And then if you connect the dots, um, you know, it's rejuvenating the immune system. Okay, so yeah, you know, it's influencing telomerase, but it's rejuvenating the immune system. It's, you know, keeping cytomegalovirus at bay. Um, it's, you know, you can, you can jump to the fact that it's anti-aging. I mean, well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think uh, in, in my book, anything that maintains telomere length 
or lengthens it is is anti-aging because uh you know yeah telomere attrition is one of the top four elements of the hallmarks of aging uh and you know people argue you know whether it's number one or number four or somewhere in between but uh, i think that it's uh, it's very upstream in, in terms of the aging process um when people talk about rapamycin being one of the you know, few things that have lengthened uh, lifespan in virtually every animal model um but that's true of ta65 as well i mean not ta65 of of um of um of increasing telomere length in in, in mouse models uh, ron depino's study showed improvement and rejuvenation maria blasco published a study uh, showing in normal aging mice at year one and year two, if you give them um, a, this is gene delivered uh, increase in, in telomerase activity that turns on telomerase and lengthens telomeres, you see a, a 24 uh, in one year, 24% increase in median lifespan and a 13% increase in median lifespan in the two-year-olds. Um, so so I, I would argue that, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, affecting the aging process when you do that it's it's got to be influencing the epigenome as well i mean i think more than i know there's a lot of clocks we were talking about the various dna methylation clocks before we hit the record button um i think they're more than just surrogate markers of the aging process i think that they you know some of them are influencing the aging journey as well and 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 i mean to for, for the, I, I just anticipate that when it's when attention is placed on TA, TA65 in the epigenome that we're going to see some interesting stuff. Do you have any comments there? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm starting to, to place that attention on it. Um, you know, the, um, the, the these clocks have been available for, for a little while commercially, um, and I've started now probably in the last year using them in as many patients as ops ops to it uh, but i think we're going to see that and i think yes. you're absolutely right um that 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 we're going to see a signal there's a there's a phenomenon um uh it's called telomere position effect whereby you see a um are you still hearing me because i'm getting a yep. little signed it okay yeah um um whereby the telomere uh, within the the loop kind of can loop back to as far as proximal as um you know, a mega base um, back onto the chromosome and influence gene expression. Um, the thinking is that um, when the telomeres get just a little bit shorter, the area of the proximal chromosome that they are affecting the, the, uh, the gene expression of is gonna change. Mm -hmm. And that could be, you know, deleterious. Um, this is the, the telomere position effect. So it's not just that, that telomeres are important when they get critically short and the cell can no longer divide. They may be, and, and there's emerging data, but not as much as there needs to be, um, regulators of the, of the epigenome as well. So I, I think you're, you're right. And I think we're going to pick that up depending on which genes. You know, We were talking earlier about the clocks and, and, and looking at CPGs and their degree of methylation. Um, and you know it's a it's a big sort of complex systems biology thing. So yes, it's it's it, we look at these clocks and it's sort of a big sort of systems biology problem to 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 sort of I mean, these clocks are trained on large data sets, right? And then, and you can train them on looking to to predict chronological age, which is the first ones we're doing. They did that very very well, um, but you know in the end 
the methylation sites that we're looking at are genes that are either being turned on or turned off relatively more or less. Right. And, you know, sort of knowing which ones they are, I think is, is really going to be key. Uh, and I think that once they look closely, they're going to find that uh, there are genes that are potentially affected by this telomere position effect. Um, and that is one way in which shortening telomeres uh, way before they become critically short can affect uh, aging and health. Um, and that makes me think that there may be, it may, the, the, the real thing that we ought to shoot for is keeping everybody at their optimal telomere length, which is probably their telomere length at around age 25. You know, it wouldn't be that difficult of a study as I'm just thinking off the top of my head. You could look at just global methylation change. I wonder, I mean, I've, uh, you'd have to, I'm sure drill down and it, but just a correlation between global methylation status and telomere length. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering, my hypothesis would be the shorter the telomere, if your idea bears out, then the more hypomethylation one would see. And we know hypomethylation is a is 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 a fundamental player in the aging journey. I guess the, anyway, that's my there's there's my simplistic <laughs> dot connection. But it would be, you know, it wouldn't be that difficult. And then you could drill down and look in more specifically to see whether there are the sort of the aberrant patterns, you know, the differential. So some I know I know hypo hypermethylation also occurs. Um, but less so. There's a global trend toward hypomethylation. So anyway, I, yeah, I just well, think that I mean, would be fascinating. You know, the, the folks that, uh, that we both work with at, at True Diagnostic are looking at that. They, they are looking at using um, DNA methylation to predict telomere length. Right. Um, and so they could answer that question. Yeah. Looking at particular CPGs yeah. um, and seeing how well they can predict telomere length. Uh, and then the interesting thing is, is, is what else do those CPGs predict? Um, right. You know, what, what, what are the genes that are involved right. in that? Uh, right. You know, is it hypomethylation of TERT, uh, the gene involved for TERT? Um, you know, who, who, who knows what's going on? So, uh, but yeah, that, uh, that, that question does need to be addressed. And, and uh, that's why we're collaborating with them because we have a lot of over 2000 telomere length measurements in our database. Uh, and uh, hopefully wow. we'll continue to, to add what we have, telomere length, epigenetic data, uh, and then of course, you know, there's the senescent T cells, um, the, the uh, UCLA lymphocyte subset panel that, that we do here, and then, uh, and then glycan age, any marker that, that, that's been shown to be a, a, an important predictor of, of outcomes and, and health status. Um, you know, I think the more biomarkers, as we said, in our, as we talked about in our last podcast, the, the more information we have. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Okay. So, so to that end, just, you know, you used the UCLA lab test, you just referred to it and we'll link to the test uh, in our show notes. Um, you used it in your study and you use it in practice all the time. Um, just, you know, briefly what, you know, what is it and um, when do you use it? Yeah, so it's a, it's a flow cytometry test that looks at PBMCs and then looks for certain markers on them that um, these CD markers, cluster differentiation markers that uh, can tell you, you know, sort of what kind of cell it is and what its behavior is going to be. And, you know, we've all heard of uh, the T cell and that's marked by CD3. Uh, within the T cells, there's the CD4s, which are the helper cells, CD8s, which are the, are the cytotoxic suppressor cells. Um, 
And then, you know, there's the CD19s, which are B cells, CD56, which are um, uh, natural killer cells. Um, and we look at those cells. Um, we get then a breakdown, a further breakdown of the uh, CD8 cells into two populations. The, the CD28 marker tells us whether they're senescent if they lack that marker or whether they're a healthy suppressor cell if they have that marker. And then, as I mentioned earlier, this sort of naive T cell, which we look at, that uh, they don't express CD95, which is a receptor for the fast death ligand um, to sort of kill the cell after it's done its job, um, fighting off whatever virus or tumor it's trying to fight off. So it is, it is those, uh, all of those markers. Uh, and then it also gives you that CD4 to CD8 ratio, which is that immune risk phenotype. Um, and there's relatively robust literature showing, you know, what the, you know, what are the good ranges for those? So certainly starting with the CD4 to CD8, you want that to be above one because below that in 80 and 90 year olds, and there's early data that, you know, perhaps in even younger um, cohorts there, uh, or populations there, there's a, an increase in morbidity and mortality. Um, sort of a, a really good place to be for that is between 1.5 and 2.5, meaning you have, you know, 1.5 to 2.5 more CD4 cells and um, than, than CD8s. And the reason for that is that, you know, we all have a really good number, like 300 to 350 um, uh, of these CD28 positive cells. Uh, and, and, you know, if that number, that, and so that number decreases of the healthy ones, but if you're accumulating senescent T cells, then that's gonna be CD8 positive, CD28 negative, which is not a good thing. And what happens is that that denominator goes up while the, right. the helper cells stay about the same. Um, and that's what causes the ratio to go under one. And that's a marker for uh, an increased burden of senescent T cells and, and, and likely inflammation. So, you want to have that marker be in that sort of ideally of between 1.5 and 2.5 and certainly not below one. And if you get below 0.7, then you're sort of in this sort of more critical area where, um, where you have a lot of uh, senescent cells and you don't even have that many um, uh, CD4 or, help, or help, helper cells. So um, interestingly, when you get really high in that ratio, it means that you, you don't, you're not CMV positive. You don't have a lot of senescent T cells, but you also don't have a very good ability to respond uh, to new infections either. And that's actually associated with, with frailty and increased mortality as well. So as with many things, there's a sweet spot. Yeah. Um, and uh, I almost see, almost always see like, so my most healthy patients right there in that, in that sweet spot. Um, that's kind of how you interpret it. I mean, I, I look at the CD95s, you like to see them be, um, CD95 negatives, you like to see them be, um, uh, you know, a little higher than, um, when you're youthful, they're somewhere around um, 30, 35 percent or more. You know, uh, any sort of healthy aging is between 20, 20 and 35 percent. And then, you know, I have a lot of patients in 60 and above that are 10 to 20 percent. And when you get below 5 percent, it's kind of you don't have a great uh, diversity of cells to, to fight off new infections. Uh, and and uh, I have patients that, that the interesting thing about the senescent T cells is that, you know, we used to think that it really it was an age phenomenon, but it, 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 I have patients in their 70s and 80s who have almost no senescent T cells because they're not infected with these viruses, um, or they have some genetic gift that allows them to, to deal with it, and, and they don't have that number. Likewise, I have some patients that have, you know, 700, 800, 900 uh, cells per microliter, um, 
And you know, they're still walking around, but, but they are at risk, uh, I believe. Um, you know, when you're born, you have virtually no senescent T cells. They're all healthy, expressing CD28 positive. So that's sort of a, a quick um, way in, in our software that we have, we sort of give you a grade and, and sort of optimal you get an A, healthy aging, you get a B, aging, you get a C, immune risk, you get a D. And, and if you're critical, you get an F. And, and you know, we try to move up your grade point <laughs> with our therapies. I just want to remind folks, physioage.com is the site that you can go to to learn about the interpretive tools that Dr. Raphael has, has developed. Um, and then we will link to the UCLA um, test that he just spoke, spoke to. Um, I just, I have a couple questions. I just wanted to ask you, circling back to our TA65 discussion, different doses have been studied. How, what do you dose in your practice? Is, are you consistent with everyone or do you change based on circumstance? No, I mean, I, I do change. Uh, you know, I, I, I tell you, I was a little surprised with the results uh, of the, uh, pleasantly surprised, I guess, but they didn't necessarily comport with what I see. Um, in that the lowest dose seemed to be effective uh, and not any uh, less effective than the higher doses. Um, but that, you know, I didn't look at each individual subject, um, which I do in my practice. And the way in which I dose TA65 is, I mean, I measure telomere length in everybody, but I think as we've talked about before, um, telomere length has a coefficient of variation of about two to 3%, but each year you, you know, you lose a lot less than that. Um, and so you need a couple of years uh, worth of telomere length before you really get an idea about what direction it's going in. Um, and the response isn't as quick. Uh, the, for the senescent T cells, you'll see a response within three months, uh, a reduction in senescent T cells. Mm. In, in virtually everybody, I see that that's on TA65 and it's a bigger response if you have more senescent T cells. But I don't see that with, everybody always in the starting dose, which for me is 250 IUs. Um, and if I don't see that, then I'll go to 500. Uh, if I don't see that there, then I'll go to uh, 500 in the morning and 250 at night. Um, the thinking being that it can, if you have more exposure in the 24 hours to the telomerase activator, yes. that you, you can see a signal. I usually will see a signal at that point. Um, and the reason for that variability, I believe is um, there was a, a pharmacokinetic study done and absorption is quite variable individual to individual. Makes um, sense. Blood levels can be uh, almost nil on for one person, whereas, you know, very high and good levels uh, that would, you know, sort of turn on telomerase. Um, you know, in the trap assay it, with the same dose. So I think people absorb it differently. And, and so I, I dose it differently. And, and the reason I do that is because, you know, if you're not getting that signal, then you know, you're wasting your money. And if you're, I'm mean, not saying you're wasting your money, but I think, I think that uh, typically, um, you know, you might need a higher dose, in which case you should take the higher dose, but you shouldn't take a higher dose if you don't need it. Uh, right. it's, you know, it's not crazy expensive, but it's not inexpensive. Right, right, uh, right. So you start them on 250 and then you just bump up based on their um, response on the, using the UCLA assay. And, but also when this came out, um, uh, you know, I've started to think about, and uh, some people that, don't want to spend the money for it because it showed that the 100 IUs works uh, and start thinking about dosing yeah. it at 100 
and, and seeing what happens, but I haven't started doing it yet. Hmm. Oh, okay. All right. Well, geez, we'll talk about it. I'm sure next time I'd, I'd be curious <laughs> what you learn. Yeah. Because in the, con you know, in, in, the, in the context of an overall program, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you don't want to overdose on. Well, you don't want to prescribe excessive amounts if you don't need to, you want to be right where you need to be. Um, all right, let me see. I've got a couple other questions for you, just sort of interesting things happening in the on the landscape of, of some of the, the gerontology world. Buck Institute researchers um, recently developed a novel non-invasive um, lipid metabolite biomarker um, that can actually be used to track senolytics. Uh, and you earlier, you I mean, you don't look at TA65 as a synolytic exactly, but sort of well, in the, well you know, so I, I, you know, that's the thing, uh, just not to interrupt you, but yeah, no, uh, no, interrupt me, go ahead. Um, I, I'm not, we don't know how it works. We, we know yeah. that it turns on telomerase, and presumably that is um, what's happening, but we didn't, the telomere length was not measured in this study. Um, and we don't know exactly how TA65 works. It's, you know, I talked about derepressing the repressor, but I don't think that it's known at this point. So um, to the extent that it reduces a, molecule, a cell type, which we, you know, from many studies, uh, believe is a senescent cell, then yeah, I mean, it's a senolytic. It's a senolytic. Um, well, it's not exact. It's not just, it's not destroying. Right, but that's, see, that's the thing. It's upstream. I mean, we, yeah, we don't we don't really know what you know what's happening to to it. So, um, if it is a senolytic, I would call it call it a sort of a, a good senolytic because not, yeah. I think senolytics are, are great, but um, I do worry that if you get rid of a lot of senescent cells, the tissue that you're getting rid of them in has to replace them with new cells, and the cells around them are going to divide. The stem cells in those niches are going to divide, uh, and then their telomeres are going to get shorter. So. What are you going to, then you're going to have more senescent cells. So, um, so I think while you have a short-term benefit in the long run, what's going to happen. And most of the studies haven't gone that far out. So, uh, you know, Michael Fossil, who's a telomere biologist has sort of written a book on it. One of the books on it anyhow, um, has hypothesized that this phenomenon could, could occur. And you want to maybe go more upstream by turning on telomerase and making sure cells don't become senescent. Yeah. Well, why we're seeing this reduction in CD28, um, you know, we, we just don't know yet. But it, I believe it's, you know, certainly a beneficial effect. Um, and so it's a senolytic, almost like, you know, maybe the way rapamycin is. It's not yeah. really a senolytic, but but uh, works in a different way. Right. So I think, uh, you know, talking about the, the Buck Institute study, having other markers that, that can be easily obtained to see whether or not your senolytic is working. Right. Um, which they developed this oxylipin that uh, is produced by senescent cells as part of their SAS, but not the sort of um, sort of protein SAS like IL-6 and TNF-alpha, but instead it's a, a modified uh, uh, lipid that that I think is is great uh, to be able to because this is what we need in the field, right? You need yeah. markers that tell you whether what you're doing is doing good things or, or not good things are you have you have you been ha, have you had any access to that biomarker yet no i as far as i know nobody does yeah. uh, other than maybe perhaps i mean i might be collaborating with other researchers but right. um I, I don't i don't have access to it there's there's an assay for sasp um that this company ginfinity does 
Um, but I'm, you know, I'm not as aware of it. So there's one clinically available one. Have you worked with them at all? No, I haven't. Mm -mm. Um, but yeah, that would be, that would be a really interesting thing to do, uh, you know, with TA65 is to see yep. a control trial to see, you know, whether we're getting that oxylipin signal. And if we are, then we don't necessarily know what tissue it's coming from, but, uh, but, uh, at least, you know, you're, it is killing it's, it's, senescent cells. Yep. Um, in this case, is it decreasing the production of new senescent cells and, and, and therefore that's why you see a decrease in CD28 uh, negative cells? Hmm. Or is it actually getting rid of CD28 negative cells faster than they normally would be gotten rid of? Um, you know, I don't know. Nobody so you would need that. the UCLA to answer that. You'd need them in conjunction to yeah, actually need, really need, be able to yeah, taste that out. Right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Um, just we, we have to wrap up. I know I could continue to pick your brain for a long time, but we've been yammering for a while now. What anything jumping out to you? That's I mean, we've talked about a lot of things that we're excited about in this field and in the future of medicine in general. But any any additional things you'd like to add? Any big picture thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, I think what's exciting to me, at least in my practice, is that now I have the tools to really, I think, be able to tell patients that I am beneficially affecting their aging process. I mean, we have lichen age, we have epigenetic age, we have yeah. telomer, what we call telomer age, immune uh, subset panels. You know, if patients come to me all the time and say, should I try this new supplement? Should right. I go on, uh, you know, quercetin? Should I go on fisetin? Yeah. Should I take alpha ketoglutarate? Um, and while I can't tease out necessarily its effect, unless it's the only thing you change uh, at one point, I can certainly say whether since you started that, you know, these markers have gone in a beneficial direction and this one hasn't. So I think that's exciting for me as a clinician in this field, that it's more evidence driven, more and more evidence driven. Um, and, you know, there's that whole biohacker field where we can sort of do it in, you know, with feedback from the person's physiology. So that, that, that part is exciting to me. I mean, I think there's also just, um, you know, incredible work being done in, in every area. The, uh, the, the whole work in rapamycin and rapalogs that's being done um, and, and pharma's um, starting to really focus on aging as yeah. being the next big frontier because of the bang for buck you get when you slow the aging process down, not only in decreased yes. diseases, but also in functionality, um, you know, obviously pharma is going to be chafing at the bit for something that can make people feel better and you know right. look younger before they get disease because that's everybody. Right. <laughs> Everybody's going to want that, and I, and I think that 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 impetus is, is there now because we're changing people in general, and, and, and certainly the, the the research community is changing their view of aging. And that's really the the bedrock for everything else that we're trying to prevent. Yeah. Yeah, amen to that. Good. That's a great. That's a great place for us to end, uh, Dr. Raphael. As always, thanks so much for for joining me today on New Frontiers. It was great talking to you. Oh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Kara. As uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting again real soon. <laughs> Indeed, we will. Are you actually? Um, 